welcome to yet another book choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick. Stick around because we're about to bring you an hour of incredible fiction and non-fiction recommendations, all sponsored by Exclusive Books. We're going to be chatting about some of the biggest books that you're going to find on our shelves right now, the biggest sellers, the books that are really exciting people. We've got a great mix of fiction and non-fiction to share with you. I want to say that we have a little something for everyone, but I know that's a big cliche, but that's the thing about cliches. They're cliches because they're true. We really do have a little something for everyone. We've got some historical fiction. We've got non-fiction and nature books. We've got an interview with a massive best-selling author, murder mystery. We've got a little bit of everything. Starting out with Beryl Eichenberger, who will be reviewing the latest novel by Shabnam Khan, a South African author. It's called The Lost Love of Akbar Manzil. Now, I have a lot to say about this book, so stay tuned because we'll get to that just after the first track. We're going to follow up that review with what I like to call a twofer. So that's a two for one. Author Beverly Roosmiller is going to play off two juicy, readable murder mystery novels against each other. The first is by international, massive, best-selling author Michael Connolly. I'm sure you recognize that name. He's sold millions of books, and he's also got a lot of stuff out on Netflix right now. He's a big name. The second one she's going to play off of that book is by Dr. Oscar Jensen, who's a Scandi author. And his new novel is called Hella and Death, which is one of those trapped-in murder mysteries. So we'll get to hear about these two completely different but somehow still quite similar novels by vastly different authors, one American and one Scandi. They couldn't be more different. After that, we're going to get our nature book fix with John Hanks. John's going to be reviewing an entirely different kind of mystery. This is a nonfiction mystery, and it's by Nick Norman. And this book is called The Woodpecker Mystery, The Inevitability of the Improbable. I always feel a bit like Attenborough when we get to this nature segment of the show. And this book is a mystery straight out of nature. After that review, we'll have a little bit of music. And then Beryl Eichenberger is going to bring us, this is a biggie, she's going to bring us an interview with an international best-selling historical fiction author. Her name is Kate Furnival. We were really chuffed to nab this interview with this uh, big-name British author. So I hope you enjoy that interview. We'll have more music after that. And then we have a brand new segment at the very end of the show. What we've done is we've got three reviewers, Vanessa, Shirley, and Twanji, will all review the exact same book. So we're going to get three different perspectives on this very big-selling, uh, wonderfully reviewed South African title. It's a non-fiction title. It's a memoir. And that'll be our show for today. I hope you're looking forward to it as much as I am. We've got lots of great books, as always, and lots of great music lined up for you. You could say our music bookends our books. And it's all coming up right after this track. So stay tuned. We'll be right back to talk about books.
was the Basket Soweto String Quartet with Sweet Dreams Are Made of This. It was an instrumental version of the old classic that I'm sure you recognized, right here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books with me, your host, Paige Nick. Right, after all of that talk, after telling you what books we're going to tell you about, after playing some music, finally, we're ready for our first review. I hope you're still with us. This one's with Beryl Eichenberger. So I said I had a lot to say about this book, so here goes. If you're a regular listener of this show, you're going to laugh because in our last show two weeks ago, on Tuesday two weeks ago, it was the Publisher's Choice Edition. Just before the Pan Macmillan segment, Pan Macmillan are a local publisher and they came on the show to tell us about what they've got coming up on shelves. Just before their segment, I predicted that they'd be talking extensively about a book called The Lost Love of Akbar Manzil by South African author Shabnam Khan. So while Sod's Law, of course, they reviewed an entirely different novel, and I was left looking a little silly because they never mentioned that novel at all. And so to make up for that, for our first review today, Beryl is actually going to review that book. So Shablon Khan is a favorite South African author of mine, especially after her last book, which came out, I think it was two years ago, and that's called How I Accidentally Became a Global Stock Photo. It's a book of essays, and it totally stole my heart. It's a wonderful book. If you enjoy traveling, I just think Shabnam's got a wonderful view of the world. While she's got a different view of the world, I find it highly relatable. I felt like every story was talking directly to me. Um, and now she's brought out a new novel, and that's just come out. It's called The Lost Love of Akbar Manzil. And this has come out to rave reviews. So, Beryl, thank you for reviewing this book so that I don't look quite so stupid after the last show. What did you think of it? I'm astounded by the writing talent we have in South Africa. And Shubnam Khan is not only an author, but she's an artist as well, based in Durban. She's already made serious waves with her previous books. And here she brings a magnificent new novel, The Lost Love of Akbar Manzil, which I think will be headed for the shortlists as well. Mystical, ghostly, hauntingly beautiful, this novel, in all its magical reality and Indian colour, will wrap itself around you as you pace and discover the corridors of the crumbling mansion, Akbar Manzil, that was once the most magnificent residence on South Africa's east coast near Durban. At its heart in 1932 is the history of the kind and adventurous Akbar Manzil, the building of a mansion complete with wild animals, aviary and the trappings of Indian wealth in Natal. His elegant, cold wife, Jahanara, who sought to emulate all that was colonial and the simmering hatred of lower classes that could be harnessed for revenge. And above all, the love of Akbar and Mina that destroys it all. But 80 years have passed since the tragedy sent the residents fleeing. By 2014, council intervention has turned the mansion into a scramble of funny little apartments holding a motley crew of tenants under the eye of an elderly male caretaker, the kindly man known as Doctor. It's here that the quiet and introspective 15-year-old Sana Malek and her widowed father Balil travel to settle in this place that he already calls home. Balil says home can be many places, even places you haven't been before. It can also be a memory if you return to it enough. But for the lonely Sana, it is the shadow of the woman appearing at the upstairs window as they arrive that rouses her curiosity, awakening a voice inside her. For Sana has a very special gift. She sees and feels things, 
others can't. The artist in Khan paints broad, colourful brush strokes in this almost mythical story. Gothic undertones are deliciously jealous gin living in a cupboard, not the booze. A towering love story, a clutter of decades-old debris uncleared in long corridors, and two young girls, Sana and Mina, who will never meet. Across the passages of time, we tread as Khan guides Sana to a locked door and prizes open the secrets within. Jealousy, romance, tragedy, and mystery roam the dilapidated house as Sana uncovers a story that has lain dormant over the decades, silenced by the horror, guarded by the grieving Jin, written in blood and haunting the current residents as it questions their own identities. For Sana, it will play into her own troubled background, allow her imagination and intelligence to blossom, and bring her a voice and womanhood and an understanding of her own losses. Such a rich story, not only in the use of words and phraseology, but the many layers it seeks to peek back, peel back. It is a story of the wide divides of the past, but how in present day the disparate cast inhabiting the house, including Mr. Patel the parrot, share their lives despite their upbringing and class. They come together as a squabbling but ultimately caring family. They share in the mystery, gradually revealing their own secrets as the final link in the chain breaks free. I roamed the corridors with Sana, opened locked doors, huddled with the jinn, heard the movement of this sad house, and ached for Akbar and Mina. This is a book that touches all senses. Its prose has a musical quality that ebbs and flows, a beautifully constructed narrative that opens one's eyes to caste, culture, and magic. Khan brings vengeful spirits, memories, and characters into our lives with colorful precision, and I felt the house watching. I was captivated. The Lost Love of Akbar Manzil by Shubnam Khan is published by Pan Macmillan. Okay, I knew it. A wonderful review of a wonderful novel that comes highly recommended. Thank you, Beryl. And now, as promised earlier, our twofer, or two for one. And this comes from our author and reviewer, Beverly Roose Miller. And Beverly's taking a look at two novels. Both of them are murder mysteries by two completely different authors. She's going to play them off of each other, matching their themes, comparing the skills of the authors and the readability of the books. The first one is by Michael Connolly, multi-million copy, best-selling author, um, and this book is called Resurrection War. And the other book she's playing off of it is by Dr. Oscar Janssen. You may not have heard of him. I hadn't. And that book is called Hella and Death. So, Two books in the same genre, I would imagine they're very, very different, but at the same time, quite similar. Tell us all about it, Bev. Who hasn't longed to get away for a while from the ongoing grim news and take a little time off with, well, a nice juicy murder mystery? Today I'm going to review two murder mystery novels, both very readable, yet the contrast could not be greater, for they are set not only on different continents, America and the UK, but they also reflect those very contrasting cultures, as well as their differing approaches to such thrillers. The American book is by Michael Connolly of the Lincoln Lawyer series, a hugely successful writer whose pacey courtroom dramas are sold in the millions, also on Netflix. The other novel is by Dr. Oscar Jensen, whose name reflects his Scandi background. He studied at Christchurch, Oxford, and is a youngish published historian as well as a writer on ballad singing. His book's title catches the eye at once. I first read it as Hell and Death, although it's really Hella, 
a former university student who joins friends in the classic English style of trapped-in murder mysteries, all meeting up in a vast home for what is supposed to be a party weekend. Connolly's book, Resurrection Walk, goes straight to my heart. His two best-known characters, he's created series of books about both of them, are the half-brothers Harry Bosch, a veteran detective, and Mickey Haller, the lawyer who likes to do business in the back of his roomy Lincoln car. They have become interested not only in the lucrative law business in the United States, but also in creating their own form of the Innocence Project, a genuine enterprise which has seen more than 100 convicted prisoners found not guilty of their crimes, cleared by new technologies such as DNA. Harry Bosch's burly police background gives him a cynical view of criminals who always say they're not guilty. But as he sifts through cold cases, every now and then he finds one that seems a little off, an uncertain verdict. And he then suggests to his brother, Mickey Haller, that he investigate that case. Needless to say, it's a huge fight, for no prosecutor or court wants to discover that they have sentenced an innocent person to years, sometimes decades, in jail. In this current case, a young mother in prison was persuaded to take a plea of manslaughter because if she lost her case, the chances were that she might never see her young son again. Now, five years later, she is still claiming innocence despite her being close to parole. The book has lots of courtroom shenanigans, twists and last-minute challenges facing her two potential saviours. But the book keeps its fast pace to the very end. Hella and Death, on the other hand, falls totally into one of my very favourite genres, that of the old-fashioned Agatha Christie-style murder in the library whodunits, the golden age of detective fiction. Some are mentioned in author Jensen's modern setting, including the great Christie herself. Also, Dorothy Sayers, another of my favourites. Several ex-university friends are sent a special invitation by one of their own, who's made a fortune in the tech world, and who urges them to get together for a reunion in his huge Northumbrian mansion. They have a history together, past flings and or fights, but all are well known to one another. Hella, a Danish expat, is one. Their friend appears at a last supper with him. He is gaunt, obviously very ill. He informs them that he is likely dying and has left each of them 50,000 pounds as a gift. That's more than a million rands in our money. And then he is found dead. The house is completely snowed in. No outsider could enter or leave. So one of those present must be the murderer. Yet they all know each other well. Initially, the pace is fairly slow, and the slight foreign perspective of Hella takes a little getting used to, which the writer pokes some fun at. As an example, he mentions the phrase, a flight of stairs, as purely poetic. I'd never thought about it before, but of course he's right. As the mystery proceeds, the intrigue does too, and I simply could not figure out the solution. Depending on your own preference, you will probably prefer one or the other. I found them both captivating and very enjoyable. And today I've been talking about Resurrection Walk by Michael Connolly and Hella and Death by Oscar Jensen. Welcome back. Thank you for that. How interesting. I love it when we play books off against each other and talk about them together as a, in context as a whole and individually. So now we turn to a completely different kind of mystery. This one took place in real life, which, as they say, is often stranger than fiction. John Hanks is our regular non-fiction reviewer, 
I love this segment. It makes me feel a bit like David Attenborough. And today he's joining us to review The Woodpecker Mystery, The Inevitability of the Improbable. The author of this book is Nick Norman, and I'd like to hear about this remarkable natural mystery, John. Over to you. Anyone with an interest in the geology of Southern Africa will, I'm sure, know of Nick Norman, a professional exploration geologist who's written four best-selling geology books on the rocks and landforms of South Africa. His fifth book, which has just been published, has the intriguing title, The Woodpecker Mystery, The Inevitability of the Improbable. Just a quick scan of its content will show you why Nick Norman has established a new credential as the Sherlock Holmes of the natural world, and for a very good reason, as I will explain. In addition to his highly recognised geological credentials, he's an enthusiastic birder, and his knowledge and experience came to the fore when, on a geological assignment in Brazil in the 70s, he saw a woodpecker that looked very similar to the species he knew well in South Africa, hundreds of kilometres from home across the Atlantic Ocean. On subsequent trips to other countries in South America, he saw and recorded other birds he knew, as well as trees from families he recognised from his home country. Most people would probably have commented on the similarities and left it at that, but Nick Norman has this insatiable curiosity, and he wanted to find out how this could have occurred. Norman quotes Sherlock Holmes as one of the three detectives who's helped him solve the woodpecker mystery. And Holmes once said, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth, end quote. And although Norman was initially discouraged in spending time even considering the role of continental drift by plate tectonics, in which species of plants and animals could have survived with the breakup and drifting part of the Gondwana neighbours of South Africa and South America, he would not let this option go, in spite of the epiphanies he experienced, emphasised by him towards the end of the book. Those of you who want to be challenged by the inevitability of the improbable, the subtitle of the Woodpecker Mystery, must read this book because it will most certainly make you think differently about the ambitious undertakings of the author to demonstrate the interconnectedness of geological history and biological evolution. Norman has been meticulous and remarkably thorough and accessing literature and reports to help him produce solutions to the woodpecker mystery. But at times, the text can be heavy going for newcomers to some of the topics he's covered. For example, the chapter on genetics, DNA and phylogenetics is far too detailed for a book which I suggest should be targeted at a more general readership. I hope that Norman will consider a second edition using an editor who will make some of the detailed explanations more accessible and easier to understand. The eight pages of acknowledgement are excessive for some 200 pages of text, and editing is required here too. Nevertheless, I recommend this book. The title again of what I regarded as a fascinating and challenging book by Nick Norman is The Woodpecker Mystery, The Inevitability of the Improbable. It's published by the Franschhoek Press and you can get a copy for 295 rand.
Welcome back. That was an instrumental track. It's called Indigo, and it's by Christopher Dugan. And you're tuned into Book Choice, of course, on Fine Music Radio, with me, your host, Paige Nick. And this show is always, as always, sponsored by our friends at Exclusive Books, who will tell you that if the book you seek does truly exist, you'll find it on their shelves or on their website, exclusivebooks.co.za. So you can browse in real life in one of their stores, or if you maybe you don't have access to a store or you're looking for a book a bit more urgently, visit their website and you can buy it online and have it delivered right to your door. So you never have to leave your slippers. Next up, we have this big interview I've been talking about with an international best-selling author. Kate Furnival is a very well-known British author of historical fiction. So Furnival says that she got the shock of her life when she discovered in her late 40s that she wasn't the demure all-English rose she'd always thought she was, and instead she discovered that she was actually part Russian. This discovery changed her life, and it triggered those Russian genes into action. She suddenly became very inspired by her grandmother's dramatic St. Petersburg life story, which took place at the time of the Soviet Revolution, and then her grandmother's escape to China. So then after her mother died in 2000, Furnival's whole family started to encourage her to try to document her mother and grandmother's life. And that resulted in 2006 in her publishing her very first historical novel, which is called The Russian Concubine. You may recognize that title. It hit the New York Times bestseller list in a big way, and it sold in well over 25 countries, way more by then. So since then, Furnival has gone definitely from strength to strength. She's published, from what I can gather, 12 or a dozen or so books, and these are all historical novels. I think I mentioned this the last show two weeks ago, but historical fiction is experiencing a massive surge right now. People are really enjoying reading historical novels. And I've been thinking about why that might be. I guess they say that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And maybe we're all feeling a little bit unsure about what our future looks like. So perhaps we, we look to history to discover our future. I don't know. That's my dime store psychology on it. But um, historical novels are definitely seeing a big comeback. So Kate Furnival has just brought out her latest novel, and it's called Child of the Ruins. This one is set in Berlin in 1948. Furnival here returns to stories inspired by her late grandmother and mother, and Beryl Eichenberger was lucky enough to nab the opportunity to chat to this best-selling international author here on the show about the inspiration behind this newly published bestseller. So welcome to Book Choice, Beryl Eichenberger and Kate Furnival. The aftermath of war is a terrible thing, for the vanquished even more so. For Berlin in 1948, peace was an uneasy bedfellow, a city divided where the Russians had stamped their brutal mark in the Eastern Bloc, and the Allies in the West were trying to bring supplies to a starving city. Against the backdrop of the Berlin airlift, international best-selling author Kate Furnival brings us Child of the Ruins, a heart-stopping novel, a mix of historical fiction, mystery and thriller. Kate, we are absolutely delighted that you could join us on Zoom today. Totally my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I have to say that the first chapter grabs you by the throat. And one of the sentences that I felt set the tone for the book was, if I may read this, the war is over, but the unspoken war of whispers, of midnight arrests and tortured body parts rages unseen. That really got to me. And I wanted to ask you why this particular subject 
why Berlin, after the war, the plight of the the German inhabitants, what inspired you? There were a number of triggers that created the idea for the story in me. I had come from a home in which my mother, though she is half Russian, mm-hmm. um, she, with her family, fled from, with her mother fled from Russia during the um, the revolution to escape the Soviets then. And I had grown up with this awareness that came later in life that she was Russian, but I'd grown up with this awareness of people who were being persecuted. It was mm-hmm. obviously something that meant a lot to her, to her, but she didn't tell us why it meant so much. And whenever the occasions occurred throughout the um, the news, etc., where there were groups of people who were being persecuted, my mother used to get both angry and immensely emotional for mm-hmm. them. And so this is one thing that was rooted deep within me and this idea of being an outsider, which she always felt she was. Yes. So well, I was just going to say, she also spoke about the Berlin airlift with the same reverence that she spoke about um, the Dunkirk rescues for us. Mm-hmm. So the airlift had a real meaning for me, which just flowed out into that book. Well, it certainly comes across. As I said to you earlier, I found a tremendous darkness in the book. You know, for me, books are sometimes colours, bright and breezy and pretty. And this is not a pretty story. And yet there are moments and wonderful rays of sunshine. Who inspired the two women, Anna and Ingrid? They are so very different and yet also so... Very memorable, I think, is the right word. Yes, thank you. I'm glad because I wanted them to be. But let me speak first about the darkness. Mm. The darkness came because I was writing that book during lockdown. Yes, I realised that. (laughs) And I wasn't aware of it at the time, Mm -hmm. that all this, the darkness, the pain, the misery, Mm. the not being able to trust that being next to someone was safe, um, that all fed into the book in a way that I didn't realise until I'd finished it. Mm-hmm. And when people started saying to me, it's your darkest book, I looked at it much more objectively and could see that that was true. But I also think it is one of my most emotional books. Very much so. Because the whole concept of a, a mother searching for her child among the ruins of Berlin is a very heart-wrenching situation obviously and Anna came from I think she for me was every man she was an ordinary young woman who uh, loved to ride her bike uh, loved Berlin Mm. Um, she had had a happy life up to that point and then the whole of scaffolding of her life fell apart and she had then to find what was underneath all that happy life she'd had. Yes. And when it, whereas Ingrid was totally different, she had lived in a circus, she had risked her life every day performing on the high wire and it was the bringing of these two different life experiences together that sort of set fire to the book, I felt, in a good way. 
Very much so. And, mm-hmm. and, and that they become almost friends, but not quite. Yeah, do they trust each other totally? Mm, exactly. That's the I, I, yeah. I found... But the other, mm. I was going to say, the other thing I wanted to say is that during the time I was writing it, the whole ghastly situation in um, Ukraine was going on. Mm. Oh. And now I feel that what I've written in that book resonates so strongly with what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on in uh, Gaza, Gaza and Israel, mm-hmm. very much for the children. I agree with you totally, and uh, this is what also resonated with me. We don't have a lot of time left, so I'm, I'm not going to go too far, but very quickly, what led you into historical fiction? It was my mother's story. I, mm-hmm. When she passed away, I wrote down her life story for my brother, who had lived, my older brother who had lived in Germany for many years, and he didn't know a lot of the stories that I knew right. from her life as a when she was a Russian refugee in um, China. And I wrote down her story and I thought, this is too good to walk away from. So I, I made it into a fictional, um, my first book, which was A Russian Concubine. And I was just hooked from then on. I loved the research. And that I've- is... I think that we we are hooked, and thank heavens there is a good Russian in this particular book. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sorry we can't speak any longer. That was Kate Furnival with her new book, Child of the Ruins, and it's published by Jonathan Ball. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
Just a cold and lonely, lovely work of art, Mona Lisa. That was Mona Lisa by Matthias Roots here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Pejnik. And this wonderful show is sponsored with all our love and thanks by Exclusive Books. This next segment is very cool, I think, because we've never done anything like this before. When journalist Herman Latakhan's memoir came out as a bestseller, it was released as an Afrikaans title called Hurkant in 2022. Forgive my Afrikaans terrible. So when that came out, it was a sellout. Then after that, it was released as a play, also called Hurkant in 2023. And now this novel has been released in English under the title Son of a Whore, published by Penguin Random House. This book has been so well received that when our reviewers were invited to volunteer to review this book, three of them put up their hands and all wanted to review the book. So we thought, Hey, why not try something new? What if we got three different reviewers to review the exact same book so that we can get three entirely different perspectives on it? So what you're going to hear next is first Vanessa Levenstein, then Shirley Gula, and then Twanji Kalula. All of them are going to be reviewing the same book, Son of a Whore by Herman Latakhan, which has just been published by Penguin Random House. Over to you guys. Let's have it out. What did you all three think? I first met Herman Latachan over two decades ago when we were both working at ETB. I'd returned from maternity leave and the first question Herman asked was, Are you reading? I shook my sleep-deprived head. No. The next day he handed me Primo Levi's book, If This Is a Man, and said, Read this, and then added, And keep it for your children. I was touched that Herman realized that mothers too need sustenance, which was clearly informed by his relationship with his own mother, Maria. In time, we both left ETV, and I followed Herman on Facebook and would laugh at his witty observations and was heartbroken to learn of the abuse he'd suffered as a teenager. Then his memoir was published, Hurkant. The book received rave reviews, the play adaption followed, and now the much-awaited English edition, Son of a Whore. I was apprehensive about reading the book. One, the hype. Two, I knew Herman. And three, I'm not a big fan of memoirs. This may sound cynical, but trauma, be it personal or global, doesn't necessarily equate with a well-written book. My reservations were unfounded. In fact, nothing prepared me for the story of his life. For his first six years, he lived with his bohemian, fascinating, yet very much single mother, Maria. She was a woman of contradictions, ahead of her time. She abhorred apartheid, had a collection of eclectic friends, and when times were good would entertain, listen to music, dance, and encouraged her son to explore the beauty and creativity of life. And while she loved her little boy, due to the lack of financial and emotional support, wasn't able to be present. Hammond spent a year at an orphanage. He was then carted off to relatives, and finally he was dumped on the doorstep of his alcoholic father. That was when his mother went off into what she hoped was the sunset. Instead, it was an abusive and tormented marriage. The contrasts of his life are sharp, 
from the safe space with his mother to the serpentine grips of a paedophile. The language flows, shocks, crunches and delights. There is no place for euphemisms, from dramatic Fellini-type images to the charming detail of a little boy at the Seapoint Pavilion. And when the sun was really hot, your bare feet would burn on the tar. Then you jumped from one foot to the other until you brought your snacks. Run, run to the green grass. Sit down under the umbrella. Cool down. Finish your ice cream. Sprint to the pool. Jump in at the deep end. Even a kid's school concert, Hermann infuses with the excitement and footlights of a Broadway show. Hermann is interested in the lives of others, which makes him interesting. He's empathetic and socially aware, and his story is intertwined with the South African landscape, the forced removals, white Sony venues, conscription, freedom, poverty, and corruption. The ache, the if-onlys, are there. And yet, amidst the neglect and abuse, Hermann was and is able to connect with good people. His soulmate, Graham Sonnenberg, and two special people from the FMR family, previous station manager, the late Leslie McKenzie, as well as a wonderful book editor, Amanda Boerta. It is the good that he has held on to, and the demons which he has tried to conquer, not least of all by writing this book. Hermann writes, Can't all literature, theatre, movies, art be traced back to that primal warmth around a fire where the voice of the storyteller holds you spellbound? Hermann Latachans, son of a whore, left me spellbound. Hermann Latachans' memoir, Son of a Whore, is filled with so many delightful, daunting, perceptive, inspiring, gut-wrenching descriptions that it begs a rundown of the alphabet. So let's begin. The letter A stands for abuse and alcohol. B for babalas, a lack of boundaries. C for concubine and courageous for taking a child molester to court. I skip D just for now because it's the most disturbing letter in this alphabet and get to H for honesty, R for rape, and S for suicide, survival, being shaped by that molester from 13 to 18 when he was discarded as being too old, and of course, the spirit, the spirit that managed to soar above it all. Now, let's get back to D. The blurb says Latachan was seen as disposable. He himself writes of being discarded, destitute, dumped, dishonorably discharged from the army, drugs, damage, and never with a trace of poor me, even though he was a victim of some of the incidents he describes, of being abandoned by a mother when she could no longer cope, of being treated with disdain by an uncle's wife, one who foretold he would end in the gutter. A coldly aloof woman, he nicknamed Cruella de Ville, while reminding himself how true her words actually were. His father was on a road to nowhere, and his adopted family comprised all the rich and lovely characters across the spectrum of race, creed, and sexuality, of Clough Street and Seapoint, until he found his only true family with the love of his life, who remains his friend to this day, 40 years later. This, despite the fact that his blood family was well-connected, with people such as the advocate Leiter Khan and the former state president Blackie Swart. But it is a story he tells with wit and humour and an eye for the rye. A mother from a farm in Namakaland who spoke three languages, English Afrikaans, the third being swearing. Then there is a suburb panorama, which on a cloudy day could inspire suicide. Coupled with the intensely personal story filled with names from the recent past like theatre personality Babs Laker, 
and journalist Barry Ronger and the larger-than-life Madeleine van Billion comes a reminder of what Cape Town was like 20, 30 and even 40 years ago. The place is long forgotten like Millie's and the Dollhouse in Woolly Point with its slop chips and seagulls, Morris the Butcher and his Druivors in Long Street and the nightclubs and restaurants like Blah Bar, Ritz and President Hotel. Remember the Penske fear worn by those people who sold cigarettes and sweets in cinemas and shows? And of course the newspapers and magazines like Cape Style, which have disappeared. It's a memoir of good, bad and really ugly times. An atmospheric aid memoir of another true story of our times. By calling the Nat government the original state capturers, while not glossing over the current political corruption, there is perspective. And writing of the women who left their children with grandparents to mind the children of others can be a call to action to embrace humanity and also for forgiveness as he forgave even those appalling parents post-mortem. There is such a depth of despair and degradation, often through his own admitted and willfully dreadful acts, that one does wonder how he managed to survive at all. He still managed to find magical moments in his childhood. Even those years spent in boarding houses and orphanages, he still managed not to hate. He still managed to survive despite several times when suicide seemed the only way out, and this when he was horribly affected by attitudes and actions. Most of the time, of course, it was with the help of those pervasive crutches, alcohol and drugs. He admits that he has no boundaries when it comes to social media, which brings me to a personal reflection. Herman O. Herman, how we public relations people on the fringes of journalism all those years ago feared you, your tongue and your effortless evisceration of anyone or anything that caught your eye. I now know a little more about the why, and I urge everyone to read this memoir because above all it is a reminder that this life is being replicated in so many other lives in our society today. So the secret is out. If you listen to the show often and wonder whether we ever argue over who gets to review a book, yes, we do. This is one of the rare situations where three of us were keen to read a book and Paige decided to indulge all of us. The reason I was so intrigued by Son of a Whore by Herman Latachan is because in a weird way, I think of him as a friend in my head. Of course, he's a very celebrated journalist. In fact, he had a show on Fun Music Radio for many years. Um, but we actually haven't really met in real life. But I do follow him on social media and I find his storytelling incredibly engrossing. Whether he's writing a restaurant review or a rant about a stranger who upset him, I always find his copy on his social media pages colorful and captivating. He takes an interest in the outliers of society and tells the most beautiful stories about people and places. So when he published the best-selling original Afrikaans version of the book, which was called Hurkent, I was devastated. I mean, I went and I tried to figure out how I was going to get Google Translate to give it to me in English. And while Ek Khan prat a word or two, I know that the beauty of his prose would be lost on me in Afrikaans. I would like to take some credit for the fact that he did come out with an English version of the book because I was one of the readers who hounded him on every post begging for an English translation for months. What I really appreciated was that Herman could have handed it over to a translator to make my wish come true, but he preferred to do the painstaking job of translating his story himself, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. He basically rewrote the book in English so that it would capture the magic that the Afrikaans version was celebrated for. Herman takes us through his incredibly complicated childhood, which eventually paved the way for a fraught young adulthood. As a young gay man in apartheid, he was never going to have it easy. But being born to an unwed mother and a playboy father who would flit in and out of his life only made things worse. 
He takes us through a string of memories and moments that were defining for him, introducing us to a host of characters who had lasting impact on his life. But I must say my favorite character in the book is not a person, but rather a place, Cape Town. He paints vivid pictures of what it was like to live in Cape Town, a city divided in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And then he offers a chilling critique of what the city is today. With memories dating back to his infancy, it quickly becomes apparent that Herman was a born storyteller. He was born to observe and then document. Sure, the story is about abuse in all its forms, from physical violence to sexual abuse and molestation. It's about neglect, addiction, depression, homelessness, loss, angst, and many other themes. But more than that, it's a gripping account of a resilient approach to life. I gave my friend Taryn a copy, and after she read a few pages, she said to me that the book was sad. And interestingly, despite the really devastating moments and tough subject matter, I didn't experience it that way. Herman's story is one of triumph. He was dealt some incredibly cruel hands in life, but he has a zest for exploring and living that not only makes him endearing, but also helps him survive. There are no shortage of books on parental neglect and abuse, but this one stands out for me. It truly is something special. It is equally devastating and delightful. And when I was reading it, I really didn't want it to end. Son of a Whore by Herman Latachan was published by Penguin Random House and retails for 290 rand. How interesting is that? So they all absolutely loved it, which resonates with all the reviews I've read and heard and seen about this book. I think this is a really big one. We've got a track coming up, and it's Spain by Sterling EQ, and it's another instrumental track.
Welcome back to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. What I can tell you is if you missed any of the titles or authors we mentioned on today's show, we play the show out as a podcast on our website, which is fmr.co.za, so you can go back and download it and have a listen. Uh, you can also get hold of that on our app, which is hopefully already downloaded on your phone. I have to thank a couple of people for today's show. Of course, we always thank the publishers and authors for bringing out these delicious books that we love to read and talk about. I want to thank all of our reviewers who give their time to read these books. I know it's hardly a chore. We all love to read and talk about it. They give their time freely to read and review these books for us. So I want to thank all of you. I also would like to thank Mzu, who pull the show together for us every month. Without you, we definitely wouldn't have a show. And I always like to thank you, our dear listener, for tuning in. Without you, we definitely don't have a show. And we'll see you back again in two weeks' time, Tuesday in two weeks' time, same time, same place, 12 to 1 p.m. Until then, happy reading.